1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is where we are. It's where we were last week, specifically verses 16 through 18. This is part two, so part, part one, sorry, part one was last week, so if you weren't here, I would encourage you to listen to that. We spent a lot of time on the first point, on the first habit, as, as you'll see as we work through the passage together. We will uh, conclude this section today. I titled it Healthful Habits, Healthful Habits. Um, I don't remember, many years ago I, I was encouraged and instructed, not by a Christian, but by uh, my Amway leadership. I was in Amway. And if you know what that is, I'll just leave it at that. I'll leave it at that. But the book that we were all to read was called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Uh, Powerful Lessons in Personal Change was the subtitle. First published in 1989, written by a gentleman, Stephen Covey, who was uh, was a Mormon. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, he had these seven habits. You You needed to duplicate or take on or develop these habits in your life if you wanted to be an effective person in your life. And so, you know, there were things like, you know, and they were just common, honestly, common, basic sense Really, wisdom derived from, you could derive it from the Bible, uh, but, you know, be proactive was one of them. Put first things first. Think win-win. Yeah, common stuff. Seek, uh, seek first to understand, then to be understood. Helpful stuff, no doubt, when you're trying to build a business, you know, and be successful. But... Uh, I, if I was writing a book concerning this section, I might then label it, if I was thinking of seven habits of highly effective people, I, I could label this three habits of healthy Christian people. Uh, and consequently, healthy churches, because churches are made up of Christian people. <laughs> so the health of the church uh, will be at whatever level the health of the people are at. Does that make sense? Right? So churches can be unhealthy because the body is unhealthy, or they can be healthy because the body is healthy. So that's what we're looking at, basically, I believe. These habits that, and that's the idea, that these are to be habits in our Christian life. These habits before us are conducive to good health, good Christian health, okay? So with that, I'll review a little I didn't finish on the first habit, which is rejoice always, so we'll pick right back up where we left off, and then we'll continue on. So looking at the text here at the end of the letter to the Christians in Thessalonica, Paul writes these words, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So, dear Christian, What is God's will in Christ Jesus for you? Right? What is it? It's right there. It's right there, yeah. It's right there. I don't know what God's will for me is. Now you do. Certainly part of it. It's not exhaustive. This is not his only will for you. But it's right there. You want to live according to God's will? It's right there. And as I said last week... And you should want to live according to God's will. Let me just say that. If you're a believer, if you've been born again, if you don't, then what's going on? There's something wrong. Unbelievers have no desire to live according to God's will, according to his desire. If you're a believer and you're like, eh, I could take it or leave it, then you've got some probably serious sin in your life that you don't want to deal with, or you're not a believer at all. Believers, in their heart of hearts, should want to, it doesn't mean they do this perfectly, they don't, but they should want to, desire to live according to God's will. And here it is. And he's so good, isn't he? Yes? So his will is good. Yes? And as I said last week, what makes these commands more interesting and challenging are the modifiers, are the modifiers. So the modifiers being 
always rejoice or rejoice always, always being the modifier. Not just rejoice, but rejoice what? Right. Not just pray, but pray what? Without ceasing. Not just give thanks, but give thanks what? And again, this is review, but also in the original text, in the original writing, which we have many copies of, the modifiers come before the adverbs or the instruction, the imperative. I'm sorry, before the imperatives. The adverbs come before the imperatives. So, and it's emphatic. It's, it's, it's adding force. It's making a point. So it doesn't, in the original, say rejoice always. It says always. What? Rejoice, right. Always. That's the first thing that you should hear. Unceasingly. What? Pray, yeah. Give thanks, right? No, yeah. Give thanks, no. In all circumstances, give thanks. Not just give thanks in all circumstances. In all circumstances, what? Give thanks, right. So rejoicing, the idea is it's a, it's a constant practice. Rejoicing, praying, giving thanks then are to be the Christian's habit. Habit. And habit we could define as a settled or regular tendency or practice. Practice so ingrained in us that they are difficult to give up. And rejoice, in defining that, Greek word that's translated rejoice, it can mean be glad, joyful, be delighted, be cheerful. And so we are to always be those things in the Lord. Constantly be glad, joyful, delighted, cheerful, constantly, really? Well, yes, this is God's will in Christ Jesus for you. Yes. Mm Mm-hmm. As I said last week, one writer said, Christian joy is not dependent upon external circumstances. If it were, then I would find it hard to accept this command. But it is not. It rather springs out of the fact that the believer is in Christ and is rooted in the unfathomable blessings flowing from that union. The blessings flowing. Yes, amen. The blessings flowing from that union. So we must know those blessings. We must be familiar with those blessings. We must remind ourselves of these blessings. Because it's from those blessings and acknowledging those and meditating on those that we are able to rejoice always regardless of the circumstances we may find ourselves in. Yeah? Now, that's where I left off. Obviously, that was just a little bit of what we covered last week. Concerning the command by Paul to always rejoice or be glad or joyful, one commentator pointed this out, and I thought it was helpful. He said, Paul encouraged your celebrated Christian joy dozens of times in his letters. It is not just here in 1 Thessalonians. And he did this for a wide range of reasons. But the greatest concentration of references to joy or rejoicing is found in Philippians. Written while Paul was under arrest. At the end of that letter, he's in a cell, jail cell, for preaching the gospel. And the greatest concentration of commands to rejoice are found in that letter. Think about that. How is that possible? He's rooted in the blessings that he has in Jesus Christ. At the end of that letter, this is what Paul says, Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord when times are good. When it's easy, 
when everything's going your way, when you're not locked up in a jail cell, when you get freed from the jail cell. Yeah? None of that. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again. He needs to to say it again because he knows how important it is and he knows how challenging it can be for Christians to comply with this command. Again, I will say rejoice. This act of always rejoicing is not just a New Testament command or reality, but it's also found in the Old Testament. And I, I just have two passages. There are certainly many more, but... I think these are, are very good examples. So Habakkuk, Habakkuk. Maybe some of you have never even, you don't even know. What? That's in the Bible? Yes, Habakkuk. It's a book in the Bible. Chapter 3, verse 17. Listen to these words. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail. And the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Stop. Pause. All right? No food, guys. So, though I go to Ralph's and all the shelves are empty, and I look into my fridge and find nothing there, And Amazon is no longer delivering. I mean, this is seri- these are of a serious nature. This is no food. This is no eating. You die if you don't eat, folks. You know that, right? Verse 18. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Hmm? The psalmist says in Psalm 16, I believe it is, verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me, and that's key, because he is at my right hand, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. Hmm? There's the key, beloved. Our rejoicing must find its roots in our relationship, in our saving relationship with the Lord, with the Lord. Also, in my studies, one scholar commenting on this passage pointed out that the Christian life is not to be a self-centered life, right? And then he applied that fact to this command, which I found very helpful. Like, it, I... Because I was thinking one particular way as I was working through the message. Because the tendency, our tendency, is to primarily think about ourselves. Not me, but you primarily don't think about me. You primarily think about yourself. I primarily think about myself. That's our tendency anyway. So, as commands are given to us in the scriptures, we tend to just narrow them in on us. Rejoice. Always rejoice. Okay, so I need to be rejoicing about my life. I need to rejoice about... But our life is not to be self-centered. So if I understand that then, and I apply that to this command, then it opens the door wide for rejoicing because not only am I to rejoice in the Lord for my salvation and the goodness of that and all the blessings of that, but then I am also to rejoice on behalf of others and the good work that God is doing in their lives, and the salvation he has brought to them. As we see in Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. 
So that opens the door wide, hopefully. If you run out of things to rejoice about, which you shouldn't, but if you do in the Lord, then look to your brothers and sisters and begin rejoicing in their grace, in the grace that has been given to them, in the work that God is accomplishing in them, in the obedience that's taking place in them, in the goodness that God is pouring out in their lives. Rejoice always. Always rejoice. One writer says, Paul's exhortation to the Thessalonians to rejoice always may seem absurd and impossible to obey given life's inevitable difficulties. But as a divinely inspired command, believers must heed it. And it's for their good to heed it. As I said, these are healthful habits. They are conducive to good health. It is for the Christian's good that he always rejoices. It is for the church's good that we as believers in Christ always rejoice in the Lord. It is good for the sake of the gospel that we as followers of him rejoice always in him and his blessings. I was just thinking about this as I... As I've been thinking about the the implications of this, I read an article last week that the suicide rate in this country has become the 10th leading cause of death. It's on the rise. The 10th leading cause of death in this country. 45,000 people each year take their lives in this country. That's the rate that we're at now, which equals about 123 per day. Beloved, there are are a whole host of reasons, none of them good, that people fall to a place where they then decide to to end their life, okay? They are, I would say, without hope, okay? And that just speaks to the reality that people are placing their confidence in things that don't hold up disappoint them because they're not placing it in Christ. All kinds of other things that will flee away and leave them feeling completely empty and as if life has no real purpose or meaning. But we of all people, the church, should stand out to this depressed, anxious, anxiety-filled hurting, empty world. We should stand out because we are, regardless of circumstances, rejoicing always. Do you you understand what I'm saying? This is one way that God advances the gospel. It is supposed to be a unique reality in this world. And Christians are to stand out. How? Here's a way they should stand out. As those around you who are hurting and confused and hopeless look to you and see, you're right, life is miserable. This job is terrible. This government, oh, right? So they, they see nothing different, nothing distinct. Why, why would they seek your advice when you appear to be just as run down, beat up, and discouraged as they are? And then you say you're a Christian. But why become a Christian? It's, there's really nothing there. That would draw me to it. You're just as messed up and in the gutter as I am. Now, take the other scenario. I get bad news. I'm a Christian. But my habit is always rejoicing. Always being glad. Not 
a fake gladness, not an insincere rejoicing, but a one that is rooted to real facts, the facts of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Rooted in my salvation, rooted in my hope, solid hope, the confidence I have of the future and what it will bring to me because I am, as my brother said, an adopted child of God. Huh? So this person over here in their mess, and you don't even know, maybe they've attempted suicide or maybe they're just down and don't know how to get out, and they see you over here rejoicing and cheerful and glad, and they even see bad things happen to you, and yet you remain in this state of joy. That is a powerful attraction or attractive power to the gospel. Why are you like that, Bob? Why? Why, when everyone else around here, all they do is complain and grumble and they're upset and we're all going and getting depression medication and medication for anxiety because we don't know how to function in this world. Why, why are you so stable? Why, do you, why are you just, you know? And then you say, oh, because I'm just a happy person, you know? That's why. No, because things are difficult, but I want to tell you where where my joy is found. It's solid. All this other stuff disappears, but this does not. It sticks. It's my salvation. It's the Lord. He never leaves me nor forsakes me. He has rescued me. He has given me eternal hope. You see what I'm saying? Advancing of the gospel. And for that matter, for your good and the church's good. I don't know about you, but it it helps nobody if we're all bummed out all the time. So again, that doesn't mean that There are not difficulties. Remember I said that last week? It doesn't mean that there's not weeping, but weeping should break forth into ultimately rejoicing. You don't remain in your state of sadness or sorrow, but you move from that to hope, to joy, to rejoicing, to gladness. Why? Because you know the Lord, because he is good, because this is temporary, because he's eternal. And his rewards are as well. Second habit. Look back at the text. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Ceasing. Mm. Or unceasingly pray. Beloved, what uh, what is your prayer life like? What is your prayer life like? Are you fulfilling God's will in this area? How long do you go without communicating to the Lord, without lifting your heart to God? How long do you go? Well, roughly four hours, because I prayed every meal. Okay. It's something. I think there's a re- no, I, and honestly, I think that there's a good reason that we're to pray and give thanks at our meals. At least it's a constant reminder because we do repeatedly eat, you know, so it's a good reminder. I'm not sure you, you know, there's this whole debate about whether you're supposed to pray for appetizers and such, and I don't, I don't know. I, it has to, does it have to be a main meal to pray? But if you're doing three main meals a day, uh, at least there you have three opportunities to Move your heart back to God, give him thanks, as long as it's not just this routine, you know, thank you, God, you know, and you just move on. But, but it, is, it is God's will, as we see here, for his people to pray without ceasing or unceasingly pray. Beloved, listen, we are not just to be a people who pray, okay? But rather, we are to be a praying people. I hope that distinction, you can see the distinction. Not just the people who pray, but a praying people. A rejoicing people, a praying people. Very common to hear the Christians struggle to simply pray, let alone pray without ceasing. Right? Let me just add this. This uh, command to pray without ceasing 
It doesn't mean, it doesn't say, it doesn't imply, before we talk about what it does mean, it doesn't mean, doesn't say, doesn't imply that we are to pray about everything or every decision in your life, especially if God has already revealed his will on the matter. So, and I I only say that for two reasons, because I've seen this uh, on the, the other extreme where, oh yeah, I pray all the time. What they mean is I pray about every single decision. I remember, uh, I remember sitting in a, a business meeting, and our, the owner of the company, I think this was his third divorce, I don't remember. Anyway, he was talking about the divorce proceedings. And his ex-wife had... Uh, I think it was his ex at the time, had, had recently become, or in the recent past, a Christian. And she may have, I, I don't know, I don't know her, um, but her form of Christianity had given her instruction, I believe, I would imagine that's where she got it from, that she couldn't make any decision without, you know, praying. Okay? And so her whole, her whole day was just filled with prayer. She probably, and I would imagine, felt very spiritual and would imagine that she felt that she was uh, fitting and complying with this pray without ceasing. That's right. I, I never stop praying because I pray about everything because that's what you're supposed to do. Um, but he was, to him, it was a mockery, and it, he, it, and it was sad because at this whole table of these guys, he was making fun of her practice, which wasn't a biblical practice, so it was sad to hear it. But basically, it made the divorce proceedings and as they were working through, you know, what to give and take and all that, it took forever because at every, every moment where she had to make a decision, she had to stop and go pray, and then they would come back in, and, and so this went on for hours. I want to I wanna give you a, a recommendation on a book. It's called, Is That You, Lord? Hearing the Voice of the Lord. It's about guidance in God's will, and so people are confused about this matter, But there's a chapter in here called Freedom to Choose. And um, it might, if you are misunderstanding what it is to be guided by God, it it would certainly help you to get this book uh, by Gary Guiley, Is That You, Lord? But he talks about the matter of uh, you don't need to pray about everything, guys. So like if you're driving to work, Lord, should I go left or right today? At this light, should I slow down? Should I, you don't, people, there is some people who, that's what they do. Uh, that's their practice. And so they think that, you know, that's the way they're supposed to be communicating with God. So it's not telling us, listen, pray about everything. That's not what the text says, nor will you find that anywhere in Scripture. There are things you should pray about, but you don't need to pray about every single decision because God has created his world in a way where if you're living according to the principles that he has laid out in his word, then he gives you the freedom to make decisions, and then he guides you in that decision process. Because if you think about that, if you're praying for every decision, then you're waiting for some subjective voice to speak to you to give you an answer to that decision. How would you even know that it was the right voice or that it was God's voice? So I add that. The other thing is I've had uh, people say, or I've heard them say, when you talk to them such as about a subject as not being unequally yoked, in other words, an unbeliever and a believer coming together in a relationship, and then ultimately where the relationship heads is marriage, right? And the Bible says, don't be unequally yoked. What fellowship does darkness have with light? So a believer should not be with an unbeliever. They should not be bound together in holy matrimony. And you say that to them, and they say, "Uh, I'm going to have to pray about that. Okay, you don't have to pray about that. You don't have to pray about that. So in your unceasing prayer, those are some things you don't need to be regularly praying about. When it's clear in God's scriptures and his revelation to us, written revelation, what the will is, I don't have to pray about that. So what what is the practice to be then? What is the command? Well, As one writer points out, without ceasing, this does not mean some sort of nonstop praying. You know, you never do anything else. That's ridiculous. Rather, it implies constantly recurring prayer, a habit. 
Growing out of, he says, a settled attitude of dependence on God. I think that's key. That's what's driving it, a dependence on God. Whether words are uttered or not, lifting the heart to God while one is occupied with miscellaneous duties is the vital thing. Verbalized prayer will be spontaneous and will punctuate one's daily schedule as it did Paul's writings. And specifically, he makes reference to both letters to the Christians in Thessalonica, where you see that very thing taking place, unceasingly pray. There's a heart of dependence upon God, and so that bursts forth into spontaneous prayer, which we see right in his letters. As he's writing, he just breaks out in prayer. So it's not the whole letter is not a prayer, but as he's writing, he can't help, as he's writing about these things, bring it before the Lord because he recognizes his utter dependence upon him. So we see that in 1 Thessalonians 3, 11 through 13. He's writing, and boom, he burst out in prayer. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus and all his saints. He's bringing it right before the Lord. Everything he's been writing about, let's bring it to him right now because of his dependence, his utter dependence on the Lord. Second Thessalonians is similar in chapter 2. He busts out in prayer in the middle of this letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. And here he's recalling all the blessings of this union with Jesus and the Father. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. It's like that. It's a, as you go throughout your day, communicating with your Lord because of this dependence that you have on him, this relationship that you have with him. The scholar I quoted earlier said, the recurring prayer grows out of a settled attitude of dependence on God. And I would say that would be a result, this settled dependence on God would be a result of our understanding and belief in the gospel. I mean, if you really understand the gospel, then you know, you know You're nothing and could be nothing without him. If it were not for his sovereign, loving grace, you would still be in darkness. If it were not for the work of his spirit, you would not grow one inch in your Christianity. If it were not for him loving you first, you would still not love him. You know he has done it all, accomplished it all, worked it all out for your good and his glory. You know he is sovereign and control of everything. There is nothing outside of his control. So you are looking to him, trusting in him, calling upon him throughout your day, throughout your week. Independence on him. And again, I said these are healthful habits, healthful habits. Think about it. So we talked about always rejoicing and how that would have a good impact, not only on you, not only on your church, not only on the lost and the advancement of the gospel, but this as well, this constantly praying, recurring prayer in your life, flowing out of a heart of dependence upon God and a relationship with him, would also be healthful or conducive to good health. One writer says, intimately related to constant joy is incessant or unceasing prayer. The only way to cultivate a joyful attitude in times of trial. Think about it, how the two are connected. Constant communication with God keeps temporal and spiritual values in balance. So circumstances come upon you that are not good, but if you are one who constantly is praying, right, constantly praying, then you take it to the Lord. You take your cares and your concerns to him because you know, as it says in 1 Peter 5, 7, that he cares for you. So cast all your anxiety upon him, right, in prayer. And you're always praying, so you, this is your habit, 
So as you feel your, your heart well up with anxiety, you don't sit in it. You don't seek another pill. Rather, you seek the Lord. And Philippians 4 says, The Lord is a hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication or petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And joy is restored. Or at least the ground is laid for you to rejoice in this good God that you serve and cares for you and gives you a peace in your difficulties. But if you pray only so often, or when things really get bad, I don't know, or just for your meal, you're missing a very important component of the Christian life, a most important component. Bring it before the Lord. Continually bring yourself before the Lord. For that matter, just like the other imperative, it's not just for you to rejoice in you, in your life, and your salvation, but to rejoice in the goodness that is seen being poured out on others, but beloved, you should have no problem finding lots of material for prayer if it expands beyond just you and others who are hurting or broken or down or unsaved or struggling or whatever. And so your prayer would be offered up for others as well, which should keep you fairly busy. And I like what the, the guy said when he said, constant communication with God keeps temporal and spiritual values in balance. Think about it. As I'm moving through my day, I live in the temporal, beloved, as you do, right? Stuff that's passing away, I have to deal with it, just like you do on a regular basis. But as I redirect my heart, or direct, I should say, my heart to God, when I pause and stop, I recognize my dependence, my need for him, so I pause and I stop and I redirect my thoughts in my heart to God, and I communicate with him. And I recognize his goodness, and I adore him, and I confess my sin to him, and I give him thanks, and I ask for the help that I so desperately need it. It redirects my mind back to what really matters and what is ultimately important and the eternal. So it's a fixing of my mind back to what I need to really keep my mind set on because it's so easy to get bogged down in the temporal junk. Prayer has a way of breaking through that. That is, certainly has a way of breaking through that regardless of when it takes place, but think about it. What if it's taking place on a regular basis, a habitual basis? Then my mind is constantly being redirected back to spiritual matters to eternal things, to the glory of God, to the goodness of him and my salvation, which feeds my always rejoicing. Third habit. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. And just again, to remind you, in all circumstances, give thanks. But to whom? To whom are we giving thanks, beloved? God, right? So you'll see all of these. What is the source of our constant rejoicing? God, the Lord, okay? To whom are we unceasingly praying? The Lord, God. And to whom are we giving thanks in all circumstances? The Lord, right, God. One translation of the Bible, instead of give thanks in all circumstances, it says, in everything give thanks, it's basically the same idea. One translation, I told you this last week, says give thanks no matter what happens. It's kind of the idea. It's not the exact wording of the original, but it, it, the idea is there. Give thanks no matter what happens, you know, in all circumstances. Give thanks in bad circumstances. Give thanks in good circumstances, in everything, at all times. Give thanks. Are you sure, Paul? Yes. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. <laughs> okay? This is not just a not crazy idea I got, you know. Try this one out on them. <laughs> See if they can pull this off. No, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is what he desires for you. 
and he desires good things for you, righteous things for you, loving things for you. One writer says, no combination of happenings can be termed bad for a Christian because of God's constant superintendence. And then he has Romans 8.28 as a reference. We need to recognize that seeming aggravations are but a temporary part of a larger plan for our spiritual well-being. Out of this perspective, we can always discern a cause for things. Out of this perspective. So superintendents, God's constant superintendents, his constant management or arrangement of what's going on in our lives, his providence, his supervision over our lives, his sovereign supervision over our lives. And the verse that the scholar referenced is Romans 8.28, which we've covered in detail in the past, but to remind you of that passage, it says this, and we know that for those who love God, this is something we know, we believe and trust in, we know that for those who love God, all things, all things, all things, good and bad, work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Who are those called according to his purpose? Well, believers, Christians. All things work together for good. On the back of your bulletins, we have a summary of the gospel, a summary. You'll notice that the sixth bullet point is meant to reflect this very reality where it says his love for you did not end with your salvation but extends to every circumstance and difficulty of life whereby he, because he is able to and is willing to and does, force them to do us good. He forces them to do us good. That's the perspective we need to have. It's the gospel, again, having an influence on the way we see things. In other words, God takes the bad and forces us to do us good. And in that context of Romans, it's, the good is primarily conformity to the image of Jesus Christ, conformed to the likeness of his Son, who he loves perfectly. He uses these circumstances, good and bad, to shave off the rough edges of our life, to sanctify us, to teach us humility, to break our pride, to increase our faith, to refocus our minds, to commit ourselves to a greater degree to him and to his purposes. That is, if we see them correctly, if we understand it from the right perspective. One writer says, when we realize that God works all things out for good to those who love him and are yielded to his will, thanksgiving under all circumstances becomes a glorious possibility. He who can say amen, I agree, to the will of God in his heart, will be able to say hallelujah also. It is typical of a life of unbelief that it lacks thanksgiving, as we see in Romans 121. But a life united with God in Christ Jesus should be characterized by a spirit of thanksgiving. You know, beloved, we are not called by God to be stoic or endure pain or hardship, you know, just, you know, without showing any feeling or emotion. That's not what God has called us to, you know, just bear it and it's difficult. No, rather, he's called us to something even much more incredibly, I would say, impossible without knowing the gospel, believing the gospel, and having the Holy Spirit dwell inside of us, and that is rather when pain and hardship comes into our lives to give thanks to God 
trusting and believing that even through these difficulties, he will work, he will subjugate them to achieve his good purposes if I will just look to him and trust in him through it all. That is the only way that Paul can say such things as in everything, in all circumstances, no matter what happens, give thanks to him. You have difficulties in your marriage? Health? Job? Family? Church? Are you giving thanks for what God can do and will do if you will just look to him and trust in him, that these are not outside of his control, that he will use them, he will force them to accomplish his good purpose in you if you will just surrender to him? One writer adds that Paul never instructed the church to thank God for evil events. I don't thank God for evil events but to thank God that even in evil times and circumstances, our hope remains and God continues to work in our lives. Nothing's wasted on God or by God. He'll use it all, and he does use it all. As one writer points out, thankfulness ought always to characterize the people of God as they say to themselves, praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. That's Psalm 103.2. But we do forget. Or we do not take the time to remember those benefits that we have in Christ, in the Lord. And beloved, this too is a healthful habit or a habit conducive to good spiritual health, for that matter, emotional health, and as I said, physical health, since they're all connected, to the health of the body of Christ and to the advancement of the gospel. It is, it is a healthful habit. Think about it. Thankfulness really is the antidote of bitterness, frustration, bad attitude, grumbling, complaining. I think you would find it hard to do both at the same time. All right? Be thankful in all circumstances. Nowhere will you find grumble and complain. Be frustrated. So, you're probably like me. I get frustrated, right? Any of you get frustrated? And then frust... Okay, all right, good. And then frustration leads to other things, upsetness, maybe anger, maybe a grumbling, maybe a complaining about attitude, which then often leads to more problems and then more frustration and complaining. And so when that occurs, because you're weak like me and you still have this fallen flesh like me, what do I do? Drink more wine? Because... <laughs> That numbs you maybe for a little while. No, I don't think so. I think I remember what God's will is for my life. To be thankful in all circumstances. So I repent of my grumbling. I call it what it is. This is not right. This is not your will for me. Of my complaining. Of my frustration. And I say, thank you, God, even in this difficult circumstance, I have the hope of heaven. This is a circumstance that will not last forever. But even in its lasting, you will see to it that it accomplishes good things for me if I will look to you and trust in you and do what you have called me to do. Father, I don't know how you'll use this yet, but I can grow in patience, an opportunity to grow in patience, an opportunity to really love biblically, to serve, to be kind, to do all the things you've called me to do. Here it is, God. 
thank you. (laughs) And my heart does not feel thankful right now. So God, help me, help me to get there. Help me to get there. Help me to believe what is true and what I should do. You know, that's that's the response. But you think about it, where, where are you left in a spirit of complaining, grumbling, bitterness, frustration? Are you well off? Huh? Is that good for you? I've never seen it do any good for anybody, including myself. That is a downward spiral into utter darkness. And it destroys relationships. It hurts the church. Bitterness, complaining, frustration, bad attitude. Not good for our souls. Imagine if Paul said, all right, guys, I got something for you. This is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Infrequently rejoice, occasionally pray, and in some circumstances, you know, the good ones give thanks. Unfortunately, that's funny, yes, but that may be true of what we actually do. Christians should be a habitually joyful, cheerful, hopeful Humble, worshipful, grateful, appreciative people, unshakable. Let's pray. Father God, help us to hear your will this morning and to bring ourselves under it, to trust you and to obey you. So simple, Father, but you know our weakness. You know our tendencies. You know our frailty. Father, forgive us. But we are not without help, and we are not without the power to do what you have called us to do. So, Father, may we trust in you, in the work that you have done in our doing, in our lives, in our new creation that you have made us, in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. May we trust in these things, that in that, in the power that you have given us, breaking of the bondage of sin over our lives, no longer our master, help us to believe these things to be true, and then help us, Father, to walk according to your will. What a difference it would make in our lives, in the lives of people around us, in this church body, for the sake of the gospel, if we would simply obey this right here, these three imperatives. Father, help us to to be aware of our failure quickly and to repent and then to walk in your righteousness by the power of your spirit and by your grace for our good, for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.